Good afternoon and good evening, everybody. Welcome into day one of the Association for Mineral Exploration Roundup Conference here in Vancouver. Mining Stock Daily is back this year at the conference for the Roundup Roundup podcast, bringing you the big conversations of each and every day of the conference, including today, day one. This podcast series from the exhibit floor of AME is brought to you by Newmont, creating value and improving lives through sustainable and responsible mining. So thank you so much to Newmont for their continued support of this series. It was a big day on day one, 5,750 registrants. As of right now, as I'm recording mid to late afternoon, that is a big number for day one. And that's a big number for Roundup in general over the years that I have been attending this conference. But here's one that's also was a, a great outcome. 1,200 attendees yesterday for Discovery Day. Discovery Day is AME's public engagement day for kids and families to come into the convention center here in Vancouver and learn a lot more about rocks and exploration and mining. That was a great turnout for the organization. So let's jump into my conversation today. We've got a two-part segment. First, we sit down with Minister Josie Osborne. She's the Minister of Energy, Mines, and Low-Carbon Innovation here in British Columbia. We talk about their critical minerals strategy that was just published. And then in our second segment, we welcome in Dr. Robert Quartermain. Uh, he was the AME lunch keynote. He's also the co-chair of Dakota Gold Corp and member of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. No stranger to exploration and mining development. So enough for me. Here is my conversation with the first segment with Minister Osborne. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. We are reporting from the, uh, excuse me, from the Roundup Conference with the Association for Mineral Exploration here in British Columbia. Multiple conferences going on this week in Vancouver. It's a busy city to be in if you are in mining and exploration. We're going to kick things off with the Minister of Energy, Mines, and Low Carbon Innovation of the province, Ms. Josie Osborne. Osborne. Thank you for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me here. Yes, it's been a big morning for you already. It has been a big morning. It's just <laughs> day one. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the province has released its critical minerals agenda. Uh, this has been kind of in the works for a number, for a little while now. And uh, kind of talk about the expectations of finally getting this out there, what the substance of this phase one document is and, and really how it's the launching pad for what uh, the, the, the province is looking to do here really as quickly as possible. Absolutely. So first of all, let me just say, I mean, BC has such a strong mining history here, you know, over 100, 100 close to 150 years of uh, taking advantage of the rich mineralization we have in the province, the incredible skills and innovation here in, in terms of people and seeing some very successful operations. But we also know that the world is looking for critical minerals to use in uh, wind turbines and in EV batteries and solar panels. And here in British Columbia, we're really lucky. We're really blessed. We've got 
16 of the 31 listed critical minerals in the Canadian Critical Mineral Strategy, it's really important that we take a focused, uh, concerted effort at creating all the right conditions to extract these minerals, do it in a way in partnership with communities and First Nations, uh, environmentally responsible as British Columbia is, very high social and governance standards as well, so that we can get these minerals out of the earth, unlock all the potential that they hold for us as we make this big clean energy transition. So having a, a made in BC critical mineral strategy is a really important component of that and that's something that we've been hard at work on over the past year. We had a critical minerals advisory uh, council to provide us with their technical advice, a, a really wide variety of folks from um, all different parts of the sector from First Nations and academia to uh, the industry itself, the uh, mining industry, mineral exploration industry, uh, the finance side of things, you know, everybody to help uh, provide that advice and then undertaking a, a value chain analysis with PricewaterhouseCoopers that forms a lot of the, the information and then of course the, the science itself. So today in conjunction with releasing phase one of the critical mineral strategy, we've got the critical minerals atlas uh, for British Columbia that's available at the booth. People can stop by at the BC booth and pick up a copy of that. And uh, yeah, I could get into some more details yeah. about the strategy. Yeah. Well, in, in uh, fortunately for me, because I don't live in BC, but I do have, uh, you know, obviously a business that is involved in British Columbia exploration and mining. I have my own capital here in this province, and so I get to come at this conversation a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in this uh, in this strategy, there's 11 key actions that you highlight. Um, so, in, t in this strategy, what I think I was missing though is hearing from industry. And maybe you can comment on how the partnership with industry really is going to be a critical role in seeing this, you know, these tangible um, uh, follow-throughs from this uh, document. Yeah, it certainly is. So let's maybe talk first around the permitting side of things. And in yeah. all my conversations with industry, of course, one of the things I hear over and over is the certainty or predictability, really, that's needed in that process. So not only making a permitting process more efficient, but being able to do it in a much more transparent way and, and to have understood deadlines and, and know that you know time is money, quite literally, right? right? right. So understanding there's an expectation there. So that's required the province with our dedicated permitting resources to go inside and uh, revisit our processes, but also done in partnership with industry. So working together with the Association of Mineral Exploration, for example, on uh, understanding what the highest quality application coming in is so that you're starting off the right way and, and with a complete and accurate application and then being able to move that through the permitting process. That's a, a really important part of the industry partnership. Another piece of the critical mineral strategy and one that you were deeply committed to and that we'll continue to work on is achieving the relationships uh, and the certainty that comes through relationships with First Nations. So everything from the land use planning that the province is undertaking with nations here in British Columbia to provide more certainty on the land base, but also like the example we heard of uh, just last week up in Prince George at the Natural Resources Forum, there was an announcement between the McLeod Lake Indian Band and Defense Metals Powerful. You know, very powerful. So that's really a, an example of being smart from the start. Mm -hmm. So before even going into the environmental assessment processes, any of the permitting processes, that the relationship with the nation is there 
and understanding how they're going to collaborate, how they're going to communicate with each other, work together, that's going to increase permitting efficiencies as well, as well as enable the nation to take part in a project in their territory and, and receive the benefits that you know all British Columbians or people around the world are going to receive. So industry has a very strong role there and it's I, I think we should be looking to uh, companies like Defense Metals and many others mm -hmm. that are doing the hard work of creating and building those relationships with nations to to provide the certainty to. And then maybe the the last piece I'll touch on is the uh, you know you're touch, talking about investment certainty. And so British Columbia, yes, we have very high ESG standards. We know that. Uh, there are investors out there who, who are looking for that, um, but we also know that it's important to have the right fiscal environment, the right tax policies, and so that ongoing work and collaboration with industry and with industry associations is a is a very very valuable part moving forward. And yeah. and there'll be more to say because this is the again phase one right, of, the, right. of the critical mineral strategy. Well, and I had a great conversation with the premier of Yukon Ranch Play yesterday, actually at the other conference, and we were talking about their critical mineral strategy in Yukon. And, and uh, Premier Pillay and I have had this conversation over the last couple months. Is like, a strategy is a strategy. It, it looks nice on paper, but it's got to have a follow through that is transparent and obvious. And That's so right. I think we, you know, as from the investment community of, uh, of international money coming into this province, I think the investment community wants to see what's next. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think. You know, from my standpoint, and having a lot of conversations, is like there's a lot of things that maybe aren't as transparent as people would like to see them to be. Is like there's a lot of, you know, I think the the drill permitting has improved, but it's still kind of challenging sometimes. And you know, mine permitting is obviously another huge aspect of it. But there's got to be a little bit more transpar transparency on getting your full environmental license and mine permitting. So, you know, kind of how is that is. How is that going to be implemented in the strategy? Are those conversations that will happen, you know, once from now, or are they happening right now? Well, those those are conversations that are already started, have already started, and need to be ongoing. Yeah. Part of improving the business processes inside of the province, of course, is us looking at the resources that are applied to the permitting processes and the, the tools that are used, the software literally that is used to do this work, uh, working, as I mentioned already, working directly with industry to get the complete applications in. But the transparency and efficiency works on both sides too. And I think, you know, I, I think industry recognizes that as well. And so continuing to provide that feedback to permitting officers and staff inside the ministry. And, you know, I, I mean, to walk right back and say the big picture here is first admitting there's an issue, there's a, there's a problem here that has to be tackled, providing resources to do so, already demonstrating some of the uh, uh, speeding up of approvals and reducing the backlog that's happening, but there's a lot more work to do. And I've been witness, in fact, to some conversations between uh, companies and permitting staff where you can almost see the sort of aha moments or the light bulbs going off when they start to talk to each other. And, and that just, you know, it's like this very open, transparent communication even. So a willingness to understand we all have improvements to make and that, uh, you know, I've seen uh, companies who come to understand, well, you know, we. We, we get it, like the province has to undertake the permitting because mm -hmm. of the standards that we all hold. We need to be able to demonstrate to the world that we're doing this responsibly, but at the same time, we need to do it in a timely way and in an efficient way that we're not uh, you know, wasting time or from 
from the perspective of the company especially. Yeah. So you, you add into this too, I think the, the First Nations reconciliation piece and the need to bring First Nations in right from the very beginning too to understand what is being permitted and how that's going to work on the land base. It's obviously a very complex uh, and it's changed. Complex it, and it, changing. It, it, it's changed. That's right. That's yeah. right. But what I'm really impressed with is the willingness of people to come to the table to have those conversations. Now, how successful are we going to be? You're right. A, a strategy is words on paper. It's the implementing of that strategy and actually seeing those results. And I have no doubt that with the kind of commitment that I'm seeing from nations, from industry, from the province, from our staff ourselves, that we're going to see successes and, and time will certainly tell. Uh, Similar question I asked uh, Premier Pillay yesterday. I'm going to ask you if you know every territory and province in Canada seems to have their own agenda here, and obviously the entire country is very reliant on resource development. And so, with this strategy, I mean, how competitive do you have to be as a province to kind of capitalize on that inflow of you know financial capital to to, to keep it here in BC instead of say going to Ontario or Yukon or, or another another province? Well, I, I think uh, any minister of mines <laughs> from across Canada will say that uh, he or she wants to see the most benefit possible for their province or territory, and certainly that's how I feel about British Columbia, being able to maximize the potential we have. And we understand Ontario and Quebec, for example, are probably the two most dominant competing jurisdictions for, for British Columbia, but we also have work to do as a country, mm -hmm. as a nation. And so back uh, in November, I was in um, London for the Resourcing Tomorrow conference and really coming to see the, the, you know, the reputation that Canada has on the international stage and being a safe, stable jurisdiction, high safety standards, high environmental standards. British Columbia, absolutely the same alongside Quebec and Ontario. So then again, we're looking at uh, tax policies around fiscal environments and, and doing everything that we can to incentivize production here while taking advantage of the the natural assets that British Columbia has. So it's not just our, our rich mineralogy and uh, the ability to establish mines here, but it's also the entire value chain that the critical mineral strategy needs to focus on. So it's much more than just extraction and processing, but manufacturing and all the way through to recycling. Uh, but also just knowing that BC is a fantastic place to live. So all of the other social structures that make it um, a, a great place to live from housing and education and the opportunities that people have. There are jurisdictions like the states who have very, very competitive environments and you know we all uh, are, are nervous sometimes about what will be incentivized, at, especially around clean energy and clean tech sure. in the states. But yet there are companies who are choosing to stay in British Columbia because of the quality of life for their employees, um, for their families, and we're going to just continue to stay focused on that. Ms. Osborne, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on getting this out. I know a lot of people were wondering when this was going to happen. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be uh, one of the first to talk to you about it. You are the first, and so thank you very much. It's a work in progress. Of course, there's a lot more to do, but uh, we have a lot to be proud of here in British Columbia, and we're going to continue that hard yeah, work. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful place to uh, come and work and visit uh, multiple times a year, so I appreciate your, everybody's hospitality. Thank you. Uh, have a great day. All right, we're back here wrapping up day one of the Association for Mineral Exploration 
British Columbia Roundup event, and I'm happy to be uh, concluding the day with Dr. Robert Quartermain. He is uh, the co-chair of Dakota Gold and back exploring close to where I uh, grew up in the United States. I grew up in Nebraska, but he's back in South Dakota, uh, somewhat in the same vicinity of where that old homestake mine is, if people don't <laughs> haven't forgotten about what came out of the ground there. But Mr. Quartermain, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Trevor. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you've had a big day. You uh, you hosted the luncheon event uh, for the association. I was able to kind of stick around, and I caught the first few minutes of the presentation. Um, you know, you had some some really important and powerful uh, kind of dialogue you wanted to share in that presentation, but I think it really follows how your career has, I mean, not necessarily, not changed, but evolved a little bit, and what's become more important for you from what you see and what you would maybe encourage the industry to kind of take hold of and, and move forward. So maybe you can share a little bit of that insight with us. Right. You know, I'm a professional geoscientist and actually I consider myself an exploration geologist, which is why I'm back in the uh, mm -hmm. Homestake Mining Camp. But if I look at my 47-year career, I had the opportunity at the start of that career to work at the Hemlo Camp, and particularly the evolution of the David Bell and the Goliath uh, gold mines. Both of those were drilled off and put in production in a three to four year time period. And they were done uh, with appropriate engineering and the appropriate environmental considerations. And fast forward, you know, 40 years later to what uh, we and the team were able to do up at the Bruce Jack mine uh, with Pretium Resources. And again, take a discovery in 2010 and move it into production by 2017. And you know, one of the challenges we have in industry is that timeline yeah. of moving from discovery into production is taking a longer time. And we in the early phase as explorationists need that risk capital. And if we don't keep those timelines short, then we have a chance of perhaps losing some of that risk capital, which ultimately wants a return. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you look at Minister Wilkins' comments earlier uh, earlier in the year at the PDAC, uh, he commented about the fact that if we're going to have the materials we need for the green earth and the electric vehicles, we need to be able to move them quicker along than a 12 to 15 year period. Right. And this is a government official talking. You know, it's the first time that I've heard, you know, both at the federal level as well as with our own provincial minister, Osborne, Again, speaking about how there's a need in order to be able to move that timeline forward so we can bring the new deposits that mm -hmm. are being discovered into production to meet this demand. And there's very significant demand for copper, you know, for other critical minerals. And uh, it's important for us in the industry who've been out there for a while to say that, yes, we continue to do things better as geoscientists uh, and this industry does better. Mm -hmm. And we saw that even reflected uh, earlier this year in some abacus polls for both the Mining Association of Canada and the Mining Association of British Columbia, where 80% of the population supports mining. They think we're doing a good job now. And they understand the need to be able to move those resources from in-ground into their hands as electric vehicles or their computers. And so there's been a real sentiment change that I've noticed that I haven't seen in a mm -hmm. long time in the industry where we have an alignment of politicians and alignment of the general population understanding that we in North America do mining right and uh, we want a better environmentally friendly world but we need metals to do it 
and we need to get them to market. Okay. We had a great conversation with Minister Osborne this morning. You mentioned her name in your answer there. Um, the British Columbia just published their critical minerals agenda, phase one agenda here, which is you know ink on paper. So I, I, I encourage her to maybe think about what kind of tangible uh, advances are we going to see next in phase two, because you've got to see something move along. And I really asked her about that partnership with industry, because in this document, obviously there's important partnerships that need to happen with local communities, First Nations, that's high priority. You know, but I, I was I was I was kind of pressing her a little bit. It was like, where's industry in the say of this? You know, if that's all. If we're talking about all stakeholders, you have to talk about industry. How has the um, responsibilities of industry with local communities, with First Nations? Uh, I, I mean, I know it has evolved quite a bit in the last couple of years, but you've also worked in working in the United States where it's a little bit different of an approach. And not to say that anyone's perfect, but I definitely feel as a citizen of the United States working in mining, that maybe the Canadians do it a lot better <laughs> than we do in the United States. I don't know. I, I guess that's kind of a big blanket conversation question, but I just want to get your thoughts on the different approaches that we're seeing. Right. Well, I think here in Canada, we have uh, First Nations, Indigenous people all across the country, yeah. right? And the places where we work, often different than in the United States, they may be in reservations or band areas where here we have the um, continued use of their land by First Nations because, you know, it wasn't until the, maybe the 1870s before settlers really came in and started to settle the province and interact with First Nations. And so you're true, it's imperative on us in the industry when we're going to go into an area as a proponent for an exploration project to talk with the First Nations who may be in the area. And because there are over 203 you know, different First Nations uh, in the province with their own dialects, often their own history, and often your uh, project may uh, cut across a few different First Nation territories is the Bruce Jack project. Mm -hmm. When we did our federal and provincial permitting, uh, we were required to consult uh, under the regulation framework with the uh, Nishka Nation, which is treated with the Skikamaha and with the Taltan Nations. But in addition to that, we also met with the Gitsan Watershed Chiefs and the Gitnau who have uh, interest in and around the area. And so I think we as mining companies understand if we are going to go in and advance our projects, then we need to have that dialogue with everyone to inform what we're doing to make sure we're using best practices. And I think what we need to do is then bring the government along so that the frameworks that they provide, both federally and provincially, and get alignment, then also involves the First Nations so that they see that there's a benefit going back to their communities not only the benefit that would come from uh, impact benefit agreements that we would do with mining companies, but the taxation that is um, collected by governments needs to go back. And then often it's incumbent on the mining uh, companies to help improve the local communities as well through other ways. And so uh, mining industry has been shown it's very good to do that mm -hmm. uh, because you know the, uh, the global exploration uh, mining cohort is largely based here in Vancouver. Right, in Canada. Yeah. And so we export uh, that understanding and now it's getting an alignment with governments who then want to be part of that process uh, where they want to move resources quicker from in-ground 
to extraction and not be the impediment that we have uh, in the um, permitting process where it just may take time to get through statutory decision makers, now we need to move it up and I think that's what she's speaking with and it's great for something as a conference here with uh, AIM in order to start that dialogue yeah. with the minister and the companies together to show that uh, we all want the same thing as do First Nations who want to see development in their communities but want to make sure it's done in an appropriate manner and there's a benefit that evolves to them as well. Defense Metals had a really interesting announcement last week regarding a partnership with uh, McLeod Tribe uh, for the Wichita project. And it was a fascinating deal. I mean, not only did it kind of you know, enhance that partnership between the two uh, stakeholders, but there was an equity position. And the tribe comes in for, you know, I think it was like $600,000 Canadian or something like that. Meaningful equity position for the tribe. But, and I just, it, it's always been fascinating. Like, could companies maybe depend more on equity position type roles and partnerships of First Nations as to enhance and strengthen those so the so the First Nations or the even you know tribes in the United States have solid ownership in those projects and those companies as well. Is that being underutilized? Well I, I saw the announcement by Defense and thought it was quite unique. Yeah. And the fact that it starts uh, right initially where there's uh, design parameters between uh, the McLeod Band and Defense Minerals that then evolves as a project does. And the equity position is one where it strengthens that commercial relationship. And there also allows the, uh, the corporate entity to go along with the local First Nation in whatever conversations they're going to be having with the regulators and say we're doing this as a partnership and it's a great partnership. And this aspect of there being benefit back to uh, both the company and the band through the equity participation uh, I think is a, is a great, it's a novel approach. Mm -hmm. And it's one that certainly we could see expand on, as you point out, which would be helpful if that um, uh, local bands are able to benefit mm -hmm. you know, financially as well as commercially from the, um, from the exploration work and development work that's going forward. So I would say stay tuned on it. I think now that it's been announced, it's uh, an opportunity for the many hundreds of companies that are here today who are doing work in the province to look at that to gain and help their business model to advance their project forward through the permitting process and also something else that the government should be able to support uh, with uh, you know, local First Nation communities yeah. uh, who are looking at other ways and sources for uh, revenue that uh, they can have to support the services they need in their communities. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate your time. I know we, we only had a short amount of time to get this done, but I do want to ask you one last question. I know, um, you know uplifting and encouraging youth to consider exploration and mining um, as a potential career choice of theirs. You're, you've become very passionate about it, but also, you know, finding people from maybe outside of this typical, you know, Vancouver, BC exploration uh, industry, like we need to encourage more people and reach out to different communities and, and pockets of populations to encourage that. Um, you know, kind of comment on the, some of the initiatives you think 
uh, would be a real positive for organizations such as AME or even other mining organizations throughout the country in the United States to really encourage to do just that and capitalize on that. Right. One, I think it starts about education. You know, the cell phones that you and I both have sitting here have 71 elements in it. Mm -hmm. In Canada, we only mine 60 of those. So we actually have to export, import some of those elements from it to be able to come up with the products that we have every day. Yeah. And we need to get that down the education chain. You know, here in British Columbia in grade 11 and 12, there's discussion about resources, the environment, mining. But I think we should be able to utilize our education platforms such as Minerals Education or Mining Matters who have uh, classroom appropriate resources for teachers and work with parents to get you know what we're doing mm -hmm. in mining into the curriculum into classrooms so individuals realize there's a potential job for that as you point out I grew up enjoying camping and I took my first job in university uh, because geology was my elective and I got to go paid camping at a job <laughs> that's how I became a geologist well, if I had known about it much earlier in my career, maybe it was something that I may have aspired to. I mean, I've done okay within the industry, but just saying, as you point out, we need to speak about the value of our industry, its contribution to everyone's daily life, and then try and get that talent being aware of it so when they get into high school and they're focusing in STEM programs, then they can look and see, well, there's lots of opportunities in this country to get full scholarships, to go on and study geological earth sciences, uh, whether at Laurentian University or the University of New Brunswick. And uh, I think that's what we do. It's, it's all about education, as you point out, to bring that next talent in, and that tax talent has to come through all of society. Yeah. All right, Mr. Quartermain, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. I enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate the time you've given us, and I enjoy the rest of this afternoon, this evening, and, and the week. Great. Thank you, Trevor. All right, everybody. That's, yeah. a, that's a wrap here on day one from Roundup in Vancouver. And uh, it sounds like there's a few events. Uh, so there's some small gig called Yukon Night going on, so we'll probably see who wrestle up. Some people go up there. But we'll be back tomorrow morning for day two, everybody. Stay tuned. Be well.